Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit around and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track -track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Are you ready to explore a little secret this week? Oh, yeah. Secret me up. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, that was said with all the enthusiasm and genuine passion that I've come to expect. Yeah, so, uh... well, you know, it's... Um, do you want to know a secret? I mean, it's... Um, um, I think it's one of those songs. I was oh god, it's going to make it sound like I was I was there at the time. Um, that you remember a little more fondly than you actually would if you remembered how it went. Um, you know, it's it's one of those. It sounds sounds quite clever. Do you want to know a secret? Lovely. I mean, the secret's a bit rubbish, um, but you know that's fine. That's fine. I'm I, I'm not going to preempt the discussion too much, but uh, um, yeah. Hey, what do you think? I think it's certainly a song that's on this album. And it's a, it's a very slight song, I think it's fair to say. Well, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's not a massive towering achievement by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, slight, some say flimsy, some say it's got the, um, all the depth of a piece of paper. I mean, it's, it's another one of those that, that um, has, does one thing over and over again you know and we have spoken before about um whether they be you know one chord songs which obviously this isn't this is like a, a 99 chords in five seconds song which is another problem i have with it but it's also a a there's only about 15 words in the whole song basically it is the same verse repeated three times in the space of one minute 56 seconds chuck in an intro chuck in a middle eight um and job's done you know it's basically a way of dressing up a verse as a song it, it's it is it's it is i don't know i honestly don't i i don't mind it that much it is uh, everything you've just said is clearly true that's there's yeah. no there's no doubt about it and and i don't think anybody is putting in um particularly large amounts of effort and there's least of all um bless him uh, george on, on vocals but it's got its own little sort of charm to it i okay. suppose i think it's quite funny in places i think it's i think it's meant to be funny though i don't think i don't think the humor has come from the fact that they've written this song and then then done a bad version of it i think it's meant to be quite funny um Especially on the do da do backing vocals, you can kind of hear Lennon and McCartney kind of grinning away on it. And um, I mean, George Harrison's vocal isn't isn't the uh, you know best vocal in the history of recorded music. I think it's probably fair to say, um, but he can kind of carry it off. And because he's got quite a young sounding voice, you know, it is it's a very adolescent song. It's a very kind of teenage song, and I think. Um, I think that kind of suits his voice here. He he sounds younger than either Lennon or McCartney, and certainly than uh, Ringo at this stage. So it it sort of fits the material. I realise I'm I'm kind of you know putting lipstick on a pig here, but it it still I don't know it 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 has a little charm to it, albeit extremely slight and light. Yeah, I mean it's it's of it's of passing interest, um, and despite that, we're going to try and and push it to twenty five minutes of of, uh, of semi literate conversation. Um, so good luck because we've still got twenty one minutes to go. 
Excellent. Well, um, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's see if we can get our semi. So I'm, I'm saying that it's, it's, it's one verse that's repeated and, and pulled up into a song. That one verse is, is perfectly fine. It's, that's, that's, it's quite a good verse. It, it's got a fruity little uh, tune to it that, um, that you know, isn't particularly plodding or dull. It's, it's sort of, you know, uplifting, tons of chord changes to keep it, it relatively, um, you know, pacey. Um, it just what else are you going to do with it you know and we were talking in the last one about um, Burt Bacharach and the the polished nature of Baby It's You well this is unfinished I mean this this just really is unfinished whether it's the fact okay so you can you can have a verse and you can have three verses in a song um, and that's fine you know but change the lyrics and throw something else in that's of interest because I know you will then come back and say ah oh, yes but there is more in this of interest there's the introduction and then there's the middle eight uh, to which I reply yeah but there's this introduction and there's this middle eight and that makes it particularly problematic and yeah take for example the introduction the introduction um, uses something that I've referred to before in a previous track it, it just makes me think of, of the waiter um, or you know it going around in the restaurant with the acoustic guitar um, and singing some sort of ballad whilst on, on holiday in Spain. It's got that kind of feel to it, that, that opening um, little thing about, you know, what is it, you'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I really care. Okay. Yeah, but I think they're taking the piss. I don't think it's meant to be taken at face value. And so I think it I, is, it's very corny, but I think it's meant to be. I think they're taking the piss out of it. And so for me, that they kind of get, especially with that kind of shuddering guitar, the kind of going on underneath it. And, and it's all so absurdly melodramatic. I, I just think they're taking the piss. But it fits in with um, um, something we've, we've mentioned before that, that um yeah, Lennon McCartney, as well as being influenced by a lot of the, um, you know, the black artists coming out of America in, in the 50s and the early 60s, they also liked their, their show tunes from the 20s and the 30s that often had an introduction which then didn't appear anywhere else in the song at all. And that's what you get here. You get this little two-line music hall type introduction to the song that doesn't appear anywhere else. I think they're, they're sort of thinking, right, okay, what do we know about songwriting? Well, we know we've got to do something with this because it's not very interesting as it is. Let's put an introduction in um, that, again, isn't isn't heard anywhere else in there. And it just doesn't work. They would have been better off coming up with, oh, I don't know, a chorus. I don't know. I mean, yeah, a chorus would have been nice. That's, that's certainly true. Um, but yeah, like I say, I, I, I don't I don't kind of mind it because I don't think I don't think it's meant to be uh, taken at face value. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting I suppose the way that the, the, the songwriting credits go on this one is is slightly contested because according to, and we all know where this is going, Wikipedia, um, Lennon always said that it was all him and McCartney seems to have said it's 50-50 and there doesn't seem to be any particularly um, clear version of which one of them is, is accurate. But if, if it's Lennon who's who really wrote the whole thing... It, then it's very unusual for it to have that kind of 20s and 30s intro because that's normally a McCartney thing. You know, the whole, all the sort of, you know, 
cliche stories about standing around the piano at his home with his with with old Jim McCartney and, and learning all these kind of like twenties and thirties ditties of, of which that introduction is is definitely a feature. But it's it, it's abnormal for that to be a feature of Lennon's songwriting. Right. So if we are going to be quoting um, um, Wikipedia on that, also bear in mind that it says that the first two lines were. Um, were stolen by Lennon from um, a Disney song in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that, that his mother would sing to him. Now, the two lines, listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Are the two longest lines. So basically what we're saying is that Lennon and McCartney uh, between them wrote, closer, let me whisper in your ears, say the words you long to hear, I'm in love with you. That's it. That's their songwriting contribution when it comes to it. I, 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 <laughs> You've you're got six, out that middle six lines and, and two of them are, <laughs> um, are, are, shall we say, borrowed slash lifted, um, heavily influenced by, uh, which makes that quite funny. But, you know, it is from something from the 30s. So there is there is that, that distinct um, influence there um, that would make it. Now, I'm a bit more sympathetic to, the, to McCartney's claim that he wrote 50% of it, because why on earth would you actually claim you wrote 50% of this if you didn't need to? Surely McCartney <laughs> would be thinking, well, yeah, okay, John's saying he wrote this, that's fine. I'll let him have it. Or I'll say, okay, well, I wrote the, the good bit, i.e. the verse. Lennon wrote the middle eight and the introduction. And, and at this point, I should say that um, that middle eight does rank as being one of the most jarring, disconcerting uh, middle eights to throw you out of the mood of a song that you've ever heard. It's just... I mean, you like to say, um, you've, you've got this very understated way of saying things. Well, you know, it's there. Or I think this is a song on the album, which is your way of, of saying, I've got nothing good to say about this. And therefore, <laughs> I'm going to be factually descriptive. It's a middle eight. Well, it's a, you know, it's there to provide some variety. And boy, does it provide some variety. It's, it provides variety in the same way, well, perhaps not quite the same way, in a similar way to the black and white minstrels. They provided some variety, but they also provided something that you want to punch. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I don't think I would be that harsh on the middle eight of this song. I mean, um, it, it, it's not... It's not brilliant. I don't think it's. I don't think it's quite that bad. But you know, for for what is again a, a very slight song, it's kind of we're going to have to get around to mentioning it at, at some point. But you know, um, one of the things that you you certainly don't get in the charts anymore. And I don't think you really got it much outside the sixties. Although I'm I'm kind of willing to be uh, corrected on that. But the idea of two artists having the same song kicking about the singles charts at roughly the same time. That's not really a, a thing anymore. Um, and yet, this is exactly what happened to this incredibly slight, incredibly small song. Um, you know, it ended up uh, it ended up being a, a number two and a number one hit uh, on both sides of the Atlantic for, for uh, Billy J. Kramer. And it's one of the reasons that I stand by my assertion that the Beatles are taking the piss. Because if you listen to the Billy J. Kramer version, back to back with the Beatles version. Uh, I mean, apart from the fact that it's it's a much less well recorded song um, and the Dakotas are no Beatles. I think it's probably <laughs> not particularly controversial to point out. Um, they're surprisingly bad musicians. Anyway, um, it, but you know, um, Billy J. Kramer sings it straight. 
he sings it like he means it, like the lyric is 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 this genuine kind of um, paying to 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 kind of you know yeah faintly sort of teenage romance or or you know a little you know teenage gossip or whatever, and it's really bad. And then if you listen to the Beatles version, you can just hear the difference that their their performance is making. Their performance sounds genuinely funny next to the the. the um, Billy J. Kramer version. And what's really weird about the uh, Billy J. Kramer version is even putting aside the fact that the Dakotas are are no Beatles, it's a really substandard recording, but it's also produced by George Martin. And it's it's really interesting how little effort appears to have been expended for Mr. Kramer and Co. as compared to uh, Mr. McCartney, uh, Lennon, Harrison and Starr. It's just not particularly well put together and it's it's interesting to hear them and, it, and it's kind of weird that of all the songs on, on Please Please Me outside of the you know the two or three big singles like this is the one that had that big chart success for, for someone else I think there are better Lennon McCartney songs on this album which would deserve some kind of chart success for, for, for other performers but not yeah. this one I, um, I wonder you know, how much of that is I wonder how much of that is linked into that um, you know obviously the, the nature of the music scene at the time obviously you know we're, we're talking um, 63 uh, we're talking at a time where the Beatles were breaking through but still the overwhelming um, yeah um, type of, of song that was popular were the ones that were being sung by the likes of Frank Ifield and and Cliff Richard that was perhaps a, a you know some element of rock but but more kind of ballady um, and 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 just then to to rewind again um, to what you were saying about having songs out at um, at the same different versions of the same song uh, in the chart at the same time um, I think again we've got the Beatles to thank for that because up to this point, what you've got are songwriters behind the scenes and people owning the publishing. And in order to make a return on their investment in the songwriters, they're trying to get the songs placed with different people and get them in the charts. And of course, if you own the publishing, you do not care how many people are singing that song at that time in the charts. You're not invested in the person singing it. You're invested in the success of the song. So two or three different people singing the same song and getting in the chart is fine because that's actually a little bit more money coming in for you. Um, so, and and I, I'm going to give you an, an example of where that's, that's happened in <clears throat> our, shall we say, musical lifetimes. Don't forget the great Christmas number one uh, clash between uh, Rick Astley and re-release of Nat King Cole, uh, when I fall in love one, on Christmas. In fact, it was the Christmas that the Pet Shop Boys got to number one uh, with Always On My Mind. It is... That much I can't remember, but but yeah, that that's yeah. that's certainly an example that I can think of, although not for, for these sorts of reasons. I think when you know um, it was found that Rick Astley was releasing that, I think people thought it would be... A, you know, whoever it was that owned the Nat King Cole Publishing thought that they could get in on the act at the same time. Um, but then other examples of that I'm thinking of is, is when you know Hollywood sometimes releases very very similar films. Um, and you will remember back from you know, a little snippet of our past in in '92, 
um, when we were in slightly closer uh, proximity to each other, when there was a rash, and I'm going to use the word rash um, um, absolutely correctly, of Christopher Columbus films. Oh, God, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, including the classic Carry On Columbus. Of course. But there you go. So um, I'm, I'm using all of that somehow to, I don't know, defend. Do you want to know a secret? I can't remember. But it seemed relevant at the time. Okay, well, at least it's helped to pad out the running time. It certainly has. Even if we haven't managed to find an actual point. I I don't know who's responsible for, shall we say it loosely, arranging this. Um, But, I mean, one of the points of interest for me is, of course, the the first... It is layered to an extent. So you get... um, you get the first verse with George singing perfectly fine. It's per, you know actually it's quite decent. It has a little less of the the sort of the the pampered snarl that he gets in in the mid sixties. Um, but then of course the second verse when you realise the game's up when you think oh god we're repeating the same thing. That's when you get the doodardoos coming in and you think well okay at least they're doing something different. Um, you know, recognizing the fact that they couldn't be bothered to, to write any new words for the second verse, we've got to do something to make it sound a little bit more interesting. But then again, that's perhaps another one of the points that I'm making that, that they're drawing on the songwriting skills that they have learned up to this point. They think, right, how do we make it interesting? Some backing vocals. Well, and not to just flog the, 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 the Billy J. Kramer horse any further. I mean, it's practically a smear on the pavement at this point, but I'm still going to bang on regardless. It's it, One of the other things that I think this version, the Beatles version, has going for it, as against, say, the Kramer version, Not I, I, I feel like I'm being kind of unkind to them at this point, but I'm not going to stop, is that the musicianship of, of uh, the Beatles version really does make a difference and particularly the way that um Ringo plays on this which is very kind of light it's very breezy and and um you know one of his great skills is is making what he does sound kind of effortless and and that's what kind of comes across I think in this song I think it is also one of the things I'm I'm sure you're about to jump down my throat and point it out to me that makes it kind of a, a bit of a light song a bit of a winsome song but Ringo's got this lovely little moment where he trans- uh, he's got this transition from the snare being on the beat to the offbeat. And it's, it's it, around the time where you get, say the, say the words you long to hear. And Ringo just very gently shifts the pattern from, from being on the beat to being off the beat. And it's incredibly smooth. And it, it just, it's such a, a tiny little moment, but it's a real like, testament to his skill as a drummer. And then if you listen to the Billy J. Kramer version, it's Tony Mansfield who's on drums. On, on that version and he just cannot land that transition it sounds terrible he just isn't a good enough drummer to be able to pull off what Ringo does without even pausing for breath and it's just it's such a graceful little moment from Ringo and and a completely I think probably unremarked one but uh, not least because who the hell pays attention to do you want to know a secret but still it's just it's it's one of those little moments that just really makes you appreciate what kind of a good drummer Ringo could be. It's not flashy. It's not. It's not a big thing or whatever. But it just. It just gives that. So you know, you're saying, well, it's the same thing again and again. That's true. But there are little details throughout the song, like the way that Ringo shifts to the offbeat, which do help to add um, that little bit of uh, more texture to to the recording. Um, I know you said earlier that um, is it, 
that that's all good and that, and that, but that, I think that evidence kind of steers it away from being something that is is a joke so some of the performance might be a little bit on the, the flimsy jokey side and I don't know at what point in the recording session they were doing this you know whether it was um later on and it was all a bit kind of um you know tired and and teasing and they just wanted to joke around and muck around with things but what you're saying then about the the level of performance that Ringo in Ringo puts in suggests that there was something that they did like about this track and you know just to kind of give you an idea now again you know wave your fingers in the air for inverted commas for, for this sort of thing but um the performance that setlist fm records as, as this being the live debut it's um it we're talking uh february uh 63 so you know around the time that please please me is starting to be played and we're um at the astoria ballroom in oldham However, of 19 songs, of which the 19th is Long Tall Sally and the Encore, it's played 17th. You know, the only thing, it basically, from me to you, it's live debut, climaxes the show, but before that is Do You Want to Know a Secret? And I can't think why they would have put it in at that point if they didn't think that this was a song that was really going to work. Uh, the only reason I can think of was to give Lennon and McCartney a break in vocals before the big final number. That's the only sort of logic I can think of. Um, but honestly, it's not It's not just Ringo that's making the effort here. Um, McCartney's really good on bass. He's got this nice kind of breezy delivery. I mean, it's very kind of genre pastiche. But that's fine. I mean, that's what, one of the things that McCartney is incredibly good at is genre pastiche. So it's got one of those sort of little, it's it's not a walking bass line, but it's got this lovely sort of dum 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 And it's got a nice kind of like, it, it fits the feel of the song. The song is quite old fashioned, even in 1963. It, it does feel like it's kind of, I mean, the charts are still awash with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and all that kind of stuff. So there is still some of that kind of slightly ballady, slightly stuff hanging about, as, as you kind of mentioned earlier. But um, but nevertheless, it, it's a pretty good genre pastiche from, from McCartney on bass. So he is putting something into it as well. And, and um, I mean, I don't want to be too sneery about giving Lennon and McCartney a vocal break before their big final number on the, on the live act. But, but at the same time, there are songs in this album where McCartney clearly hasn't put this much thought into how he's delivering his bass line. But here, whether it's because it's a genre pastiche and that's something that comes very naturally to him or whether he really is, is making a bit more of an effort for, for this particular song, I don't know. But it, it kind of it kind of clicks. If, if anything, it's the other two that aren't really... I mean, fair enough. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, Lennon wrote it, so you can't say that he didn't put any effort in. But, um, but one way or the other, you know, both, both, both McCartney and Starr, the rhythm section, are, are doing good work here. And, and if, if it's positioned towards the end of a set, yeah, there must be, there must be something in it. Although, that said, by the time they, they last play it of June of that year in, at the ABC Cinema in Great Yarmouth, it's third on an 11 song set um and it comes before misery and a taste of honey um yeah so 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 um so it's evidence for both uh, both sides of the argument i, there, I, I think. think i think so yeah they they quite liked it they wanted to try it it didn't quite work and they dropped it quite soon yeah the king of the and 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 uh billy j kramer can uh, can 
play with it as he so requires afterwards. Yeah, well, you do wonder. I mean, I'm not going to go into um, uh, Billy J. Kramer's set list, but you, you but, figure if, if he's still playing live in 64, 65, he's probably still got that reasonably prominent because it's a big hit for him. Whereas, of course, the Beatles are clever enough to go out and write a load more. Well, this does scrape to um, it does scrape up to number two in America in nineteen sixty four. I think the Beatles version, if I'm not mistaken. So it does eventually, it does eventually kind of get there. But I mean, yeah. honestly, uh, you know, I, I, it's the old cliche. But anything with the word Beatles on it would have would have sold in nineteen sixty four. Yeah. Not in any way indicative of the quality of the song or how far up the charts it got by uh, sort of recording that position. I, I must admit, I, I, you, you presumably read the same part of Wikipedia as uh, as I did on that one. But I, I love the, the a fact of such spuriousness as as to really make me laugh. Saying it was the biggest selling George Harrison Beatles song until something and you just think right okay how many harrison songs were released as singles in america uh, between then i i don't know i don't know maybe maybe there were loads i'm go- i'm going to go ahead and suggest not. not well yeah i mean that would be an interesting piece of research by the time we next talk other than the fact that we will have forgotten that we said that that was an interesting piece of research and neither of us will have done it and that's okay well, maybe we should throw it out to our listeners. Maybe, maybe our, 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 our listeners who are, 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 are keenly hanging on our every word here, maybe somebody out there in the ether can tell us how many George Harrison singles were released between Do You Want to Know a Secret and something. In America, where, where in, in America. fairness, there, there does seem to have been, certainly in the early days, um, a different kind of priority in terms of um, Beatles singles, where it just seems like almost anything would would get released but that might have been to do with playing catch-up um you know because they were effectively what a year a year 14 15 months behind the uk in terms of beetle releases yeah well i will look forward to the absolute grand total of no replies we get from our listeners on this piece of research that we have now asked for but but who knows who knows i'm happy to be proven wrong I, I admire your optimism that we'll get as many as zero <laughs> well you know i'm a bright and cheery fellow <laughs> Oh dear, yeah. I mean, side two is is not exactly um, um, hotting up at this point, really, is it? I mean, I quite like "Baby It's You." Um, yeah, "P.S. I Love You" is you know slight. Um, I think that was the other one that just repeats over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we've we've got a taste of honey. There's a place, and um, "Boys Mark Two to come. Yeah, well, something, something to 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 look forward to. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But listeners, it's going to be worth sticking around for. Yes, yeah, yeah. Don't don't let our our slight <laughs> well of negativity put you off in any way, shape, or form. But again, I mean, this is all within in the context of you know a fine bunch of of musicians and songwriters learning their craft, developing. As you know, in a studio, they're so inexperienced in terms of studio recording, and so hugely experienced in terms of, of live performance. This is fascinating um, to to go back and to listen to these and and think, well, okay, how different would it have been if there'd have been an audience and they'd been interacting with the audience, they'd have been bouncing off the audience, playing up to it. I mean, you, you may well for do you want to know a secret? There may have been even more daftness going on. Um, if the audience had been there with them. Um, you know, obviously we'll never know that, but it's sort of interesting to, just to think 
how different it might have been. Even though these were effectively live recordings with very little in the way of, of editing um, or indeed dubbing, um, it's still not quite the same as a live performance with, with an audience. No, and, and um, that may well be why some of this material feels like it, it lacks slightly in the, in the studio versions. I mean, yeah. so much of it was, was done pretty much as live, but yeah, when you don't have that feedback, when you don't have that interaction, then it is necessarily going to, going to feel different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, it's a song on this album. Sorry to, to quote you. Um, and it gets us from, from A to B. Unfortunately, A to B on side two is Love Me Do to Twist and Shout, mm. isn't it? Yeah. You don't have to apologise for quoting me. I quite like it when people do that. Okay. Okay. That's fair enough. Um, you know, you, you sort of wonder um, at this point, um, what I've not done is, is sort of thought about looking at any reviews for the album itself. And I think that might actually be one thing I'll, I'll do is, is just start to, to dive in. Because I know we're, we're planning on um, once we've got through to, to Twist and Shout, actually talking about the album as a whole and about how it sort of fits together and and then sort of thinking about how perhaps we first experienced it. And I, and I think because you're aware of the myth of the Beatles and of the, you know, the Strawberry Fields Forever type Beatles, the Hey Jude Beatles, before you most people will go back and listen to this, um, I think maybe they'll be a bit disappointed by the the number of, of cover versions on there and the number of, of slight songs. So, you know, there's something interesting to have a think about there um, before um, before delving a little bit deeper. But um, I must admit, I have just realised, I've just had a moment um, and, and I've just realised one thing that really winds me up about this song more than anything else, and that's the absence of a question mark. Okay, yeah, well, you know, punctuation is very important. Hmm. And yet the previous two songs are punctuated perfectly. P.S. I love you. Baby, it's you, with an apostrophe in the correct place. Do you want to know a secret? Well, without the question mark, maybe it makes it sound a little bit more threatening than it's meant to be. Do you want to know a secret? I'm not sure that interpretation is entirely justified with the weight of the text. Yeah, it's fine. That's fine. I'm sticking to it, though. I'm sticking to it. Well, when you've got a text that is is basically 20 words repeated three times with a few do-was thrown in, um, you know, I think any analysis um, is going to be particularly thin at best. So you could just chuck your own in. Well, you know, Do You Want to Know a Secret is is a song all about um, liberal humanism. Um, you know, you can say whatever you like at this point. Yeah, well, before we uh, before we start talking about the semiotic thickness of the text, perhaps we should just draw a veil over this and quietly move towards a conclusion. Yes, what would Roland Barthes have to say about Do You Want to Know a Secret? We'll never know and or care. And even if he had written about it, we wouldn't be able to understand it anyway because his writing's impenetrable. Well, there is that too. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, we, that was said in such a way as there? to cut me off at the bar say, please, enough. <laughs> Right, okay, I think that's more than enough on, on this particular song. You can contact us by email. We are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. So, 
that's it for this week. Next episode, we are going to tickle those taste buds with a taste of honey. But until then, keep listening.